If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page number eight. Page number eight. And we want to welcome you back to our study in the book of Genesis. We had a brief uh, eight-week break as we were uh, in the book of Revelation. And today we continue our study by picking up where we left off, starting into chapter 12, which chapter 12 here describes a new beginning. It describes the new beginning of God's plans for the salvation of humanity, which started with, which began with one man named Abram. We've already looked at chapters 1 through 11, so we won't rehash all of that. But chapters 1 through 11 is the first part of uh, Genesis, uh, this, this epic book of Genesis. Uh, here in these chapters are recording, uh, is the recording of, of this ancient history, or what could be called primeval history. Uh, it's God, God's, uh, God's work, it, it details God's work uh, in the world, uh, of creating the world, the, the whole earth. Uh, this is universal or, or macro history. It's, 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 it's big, it's a broad level history. Uh, Martin Luther has said that these chapters, chapters 1 through 11 that is, are certainly the foundation for the whole scriptures. So we have to get chapters 1 through 11 right. And hopefully we learned some things and understood some things in those chapters as we went through them. What follows then now in chapter 12 through 50 if, if, that, if 1 through 11 is macro, then what happens in 12 through 50 is micro. Meaning, from, from this scope of all humanity, now we get into this, this focus, this singular focus on one family. Uh, particularly, obviously, the family of Abraham. And we will see familiar stories from this specifically chosen family. Stories about, of course, Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, about Jacob, about Joseph, and so on and so forth. Really, this is the origins of the nation of Israel. Um, as, the, as the world had, had descended, and that's what we saw in chapters 1 through 3, the world had descended into sin and rebellion. Right? We saw it from, from the garden, the rebellion in the garden, and then in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Right? This is a, a clear descent from the, the paradise that was once in chapters 1 and 2. This, this clear descent uh, into rebellion. As the world has descended, Genesis part 2 here, 12 through 15, shows God at work as he fulfills his promises to and through Abram and to all his people. So last time we were looking at Genesis in chapter 11, we met Abram, or we read about Abram. And Abram, we find, was a descendant of, a son of, Terah. Terah, we learn in the Bible, was an idolater who served pagan gods. We see that in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2. So we conclude then that Abram grew up in, a, in an idolatrous, idolatrous family. Um, uh, tells us that, that, that here also in chapter 11 that Terah and Abram moved from Ur and headed towards Canaan. 
but we find out at the end of chapter 11 that they stop in Haran instead of going all the way to Canaan. That brings us up to chapter 12. And you've already heard it read, but in chapter 12, what we see is God's words to Abram. Why did Abram move from Ur? What, what, what provoked he and his family to begin to move? And in chapter 12, verse 1, we, we hear those words. Look at it again. We see the commandment of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now we may, um, what, what sticks out here to us is, is God speaking to man. Now that, that might not seem that shocking um, to us as we read the Bible, but, but, but in the moment, again, taking it, this in history, we can go back to chapters 1 and 2 and we see God talking to Adam. And then in chapter 6, we see him talking to Noah. But since that time, it had been 300 years since any record of God speaking to man. And so, th though we might think God speaking in the Bible is this very common occurrence, that there's this great span of time where, where that was not happening. There wasn't this God speaking to individuals, and yet here we see it. After 10 generations, right, from Shem down to Abram, that's 10 generations, God had not, at least recorded, spoken to mankind. And here he speaks, and he speaks to this man named Abram, who we find out in verse 4 was 75 years old. And now some of you might be close to 75 years old. I'm not 75 years old yet, but, but I'm, I'm old enough to know that by the age of 75, you can be pretty set in your ways, right? And so here God calls to, to a 75-year-old man, and he calls him to do something pretty extraordinary. He was living here in a, in a city, we, we've talked about the city of Ur, which was an idolatrous city. And there's no indication here that Abram was following God when God called him. Right? The indication would be that Abraham did not uh, follow God. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing here that God's calling a man who, who doesn't know him from an idolatrous city at 75 years old, set in his ways, and God's going to use him for a pretty significant, that's an understatement, uh, purpose in his life. Abraham was not a, a great man as far as his morality, uh, we're going to find out that he was a very flawed man as we continue in the book of Genesis. And we might wonder, well, why, God, why did God call him to begin with? Well, why does God call anybody? <laughs> and why does God use you? Or why does God use me? And the Apostle Paul says, it's to confound people. Right? It's to confound the wise. It's to say, only God gets the glory in this. Because there's no way this person could do this on their own. Certainly, Abram could not either. Abram was undeserving, and that is who grace is for, <clears throat> the undeserving, which includes you and includes me. The Lord's words began with a commandment. Uh, it's an imperative. We see it there in his first, the very first word, go, go. The word of the Lord comes to Abram, and what is it? Go, leave, depart. Get out of the country from your kindred and your father's house. So this command involves, involves three things. 
and they, they escalate from, from country to kindred to the father's, your father's house, right? It's from your culture to your birthplace to your extended family, right? That in, in, in more difficult order, right? Every, every step is, is more difficult. That's what we're seeing here. It's no small thing, especially if, if you recognize the culture in which Abram lived, would have been very familial, meaning they would have stayed together. Families would, would, would frequently do such things. And so this is the call on Abram. And though Abram uh, was from a <clears throat> idolatrous world, um, it was his home, right? Th- these were his people. Uh, these were his friends. And yet God is calling him out of it. Maybe try to put yourself into that for a moment. Can you imagine that God would call you? Call you out of what you are comfortable with. Call you out of your ways. Call you away from, quote unquote, your people. As hard as it may may have been, we also have to recognize who is calling it's the living God. When God calls, we, we, we must listen. God is not giving to Abraham an invitation. He's not saying to Abraham, here's an opportunity for you, Abraham. You could do this or maybe, you, maybe, maybe not. It is not that. It is a command. It is an imperative from God to what? To go. To leave everything to, a, to, to go to a place that I will show you. When God calls, we must listen. And here, as we read through the Bible, what we can know is this. The alternative is never better. You may say, well, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. As we read through the Bible, we see stories of people who heard God's call and thought, I like my life the way it is. I want to do it my way. We think of the prophet named Jonah, who didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. How'd that work out for him? Not so good, right? Or the rich young ruler, who, who, who God calls to him, and, and what does he do? He, 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 won't, he won't obey. And it says he, he goes away sad. He goes away depressed. His life was not better for having rejected the call of God. And you can know today that your life will not be better for rejecting God's call in your life today. God called Abraham out of Ur to, quote, the land I will show you. Now, the call to go is very clear, right? It's to go. It's to get out of this place. But where to go was undisclosed, right? Go and I'll show you. You go first, then I'll show you where you're going to land, which land you will go to. Now, we understand, because we have the whole story, what the land was or where the land was, where this promised land was. It was, in fact, Canaan. But Abram did not know that at this point. So this is a call to trust God. It's a call to believe God. It's a call to walk by faith without sight. Uh, John Calvin says that the Lord was saying, in effect, quote, 
I command you to go forth with eyes closed and forbid you to inquire where I am about to lead you until, having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. This is walking by faith. This is walking by faith. This is what faith actually looks like. It's taking God at his word. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, without faith, we cannot please God. So we might ask then, where does this faith come from? Well, faith is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us that saving faith is a gift. We know that this faith is, is God-given. So we have not because we ask not. You might say, I'm not sure if I have the faith to do such a thing. You have not because you ask not. God called Abram out. He called him out of his, this life, out of this idolatrous city, out of this way of living to bring him into true life. Doesn't that sound like another call that God gives to us? Doesn't that sound like the gospel call? That God calls us out of our sin into his marvelous light. Jesus said this way in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what, for what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. The call of God, the gospel call, is to leave your life, to die to yourself, and find true life in him. If you've never answered that call, that's the call of God today. Truly, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. We've said this multiple times in the past few weeks as we look to, to the churches in Revelation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. Don't wait. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. If you have not, if you have not responded to the call of God to repent and believe, do so today. See Jesus as the Savior you need today. Do not wait. God's command came to Abram, and it was a command. But we also find that it was not without promises. In the next verses, we see that God's covenant promises uh, were to Abraham and onward. In verses 1 through 3, we can see a repeated phrase, I will. It starts in, chat, in verse 1. We see it once there. And then we see it four times in verses 2 and 3. Look at it with me. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, is there any mistake about who is doing what here? Is, is Abraham doing, doing anything on his own here? No, no, no. God is doing it. God is, is active here. God is making the promises. He is the promise keeper. He will do these things. That's what he's saying. I will. You do this, and this is what I'm going to do. 
Not without responsibility that Abraham has, surely, true, amen. But God is making promises here of what he will do. And here we see both personal promises to Abram and global promises, we could say. The first are the personal promises in verses two of a great nation and a great name. Now, that might sound not non-essential or not really that uh, exciting to you to have a, a, a great nation. But one of the things we've already learned about Abram and his wife is that, or, or we know about them, is that they, that she is barren. That's, that's a problem. If you're going to have a great nation, you're going to have to have babies. If you're barren, you're not having babies. Right? So the, the, the plot is thickening here. When, when we know this about Sarah, and the Lord then is promising a great nation. Right? These, these two things don't seem like they're going to go together. How, how would this ever happen? We'll, certainly, that will unfold as we keep going. Um, and yet, God, we know, is the God of the impossible, and he does make a way. The second promise is the great, uh, a great name. Not only a great nation, but a great name. Now, this is in juxtaposition against what we see in chapter 11, where at the Tower of Babel. And do you remember why they were building what they built? To make a name for themselves. Themselves. And what God is doing here is saying, you know, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but what I'm going to do in you is I'm going to, I'm going to make your name great. You're not going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great. It is God who would do that. And certainly he did. As we see later, Abram does in fact have a child. Spoiler alert. His name was Isaac. And from that, multiple descendants, multitude of descendants came. In chapter 23, we find out that that Abraham is referred to as a prince. As we go through Abraham's lineage, we find out that he has kings in his lineage. Namely, King David. From whom then comes another king? King Jesus. Right? All from Father Abraham. Around the world, even today, there are thousands of people from different religions who all know and claim Father Abraham as their originator or their uh, key person in their history. God did that. God made his name great. God kept his promise to Abraham here, and we see that he'll keep the other promises as well. Unlike the men at Babel who repeatedly said, come let us Here, God says and declares, I will. God is at work. God is making promises, but not only promises to Abraham or Abram, but also global promises or global blessings in verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." In and through Abram, Abraham's family, his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on, blessing would come to those who would bless Abraham. We're going we're to jump to the ultimate, um, the ultimate meaning here is that in Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham, in Christ we receive the blessing of Abraham. And what is that blessing? It's ultimately salvation. 
Uh, Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, so he knew that that would happen, he knew he was going to do that, what? He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So he's connecting this, this blessing with this idea of the good news, the gospel. So then those, uh, Paul continues, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the ultimate blessing that God is promising that would come through Abraham is the blessing of salvation for those who would come to Christ by faith. So how are the families of the earth blessed? They're blessed by coming to the God of Abraham and trusting in his son to be their savior. God's commandment to Abraham came with a covenant. It came with promises. And James Montgomery Boyce notes that Jesus' call to faith in the New Testament also is accompanied by promises. Here are two. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, come to me, this is Jesus speaking, all who labor and are heavy laden. Anybody relate with that description? And I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The promise of God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. Command, come to me, promise, I will give you rest. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go, sell what, sell what you possess and give to the poor. Right? That's the command, promise. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Command, promise. It's not just for Abraham. It's for you and me today as well. Well, upon hearing God's call, his promise, we see what Abram does next in verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai's wife, Lot his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people that had they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now from Ur to, to Canaan was, was something, I saw two different numbers here, 600 and 800 miles. So we'll just say between that somewhere, that's the distance that, that Abraham would, be, would have been traveling from, uh, from Ur to, to Canaan. And here, what the, the point of even bringing up the mileage is just to say the commitment that Abram had to obey God. Now, some of us won't walk across the street. Right? Some of us won't get in our car to, 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 to travel to wherever. Here, Abram is, is traveling six to 800 miles in obedience to God. Faith, says one writer, is demonstrated through action. We have a lot of people running around saying they believe, saying they're a Christian. How, how, how do we know that? 
So you can't judge me, only God could judge me. Well, God will judge you, don't worry about that. But how could anyone even know that you're a Christian? It's demonstrated. It's demonstrated through obedience. That is the fruit of salvation. Salvation is not just something that's between me and God, and that's all there is. No, if that's true, then there's evidence of that. That's how it works. Why? Because you've been given a new heart, and you've been given a spirit that produces things in your life that are evident to other people. And if those evidences are not evident, <laughs> we have a problem. We have a problem of whether or not there is a spirit, of whether or not there is a conversion. Faith is demonstrated through action. Another author writes, obedience to God always rises out of trust in God. In other words, we obey God because we believe that he knows what is best. And can you say that this morning? We obey God because we know that he knows best. We believe that he knows best. And so when we read the word of God that, that, that counters or conflicts with what we want to be true, we want, we're going to believe him. Can you say that this morning? Are you living that out? Abram lived that out. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive an inherit as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, meaning he left his, his home, he left his inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram had, had a different outlook he wasn't concerned, he wasn't consumed by his physical inheritance on earth. It didn't bind him, it didn't hold him down. And Kent Hughes writes, Abram's clear vision of God's call in the future detached him from the world. Just as it will detach God's people from grounding our lives too deeply in the present. Meaning with, with eternity in view, this becomes um, inconsequential to a degree. Meaning we hold it in an open hand. Whatever it is that we are holding, that is. Abram demonstrated his commitment not only by going, which he did in fact do, but he did so, he also worshipped. We see that in the rest of verse, beginning of verse 5. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moriah, Moriah or Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, now, this uh, place called Shechem here is geographically in the center of Canaan. In this place called, called the, the, the oak, or the, it's a, could be a, a terabith tree, was a place, a, a particular location, where they would hear oracles or revelations from uh, soothsayers or, or fortune tellers. 
What, what, what's the point? Why, why do we care? The, the point is, is that Canaan was not a godly place. Abraham went from Ur, which was an idolatrous city, to another idolatrous place. Uh, paganism was, was alive and well in this region of the world. And there, in the midst of, of the pagan Canaanites, what do we see? Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. Don't, don't read past that. The Lord appeared. This is what, what's called a, a theophany. And a definition of, of that would be to say a manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. So how the Lord appeared to Abram, we, we don't know. But there's some visible manifestation that happens here for Abram. The Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, in some ways, this is a reiteration of the, the promises he has already made. But he's saying it. Now he's in this land. You'll go to a land that I will show you, he says in verse 1. Now he's in this land and God says, this is the land and I'm promising it to give it to you and your family. Here God appears. And here Abram hears God's voice, the promise again, and what is his response? So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In the presence of God, the rightful response is worship. Not questions, not trying to defend myself, no, worship. It's ascribing to God who he is and his worthiness. We see this also in Exodus chapter 3. You know this story about Moses. Moses had, had fled from where he was, and he was a shepherd. And as he was leading his sheep, he comes upon a bush, and the bush is burning. That would be a sight nonetheless, but then from the bush... He hears a voice, and it is the voice of the Lord speaking to him. And again, let's not assume that these are, these, these are normal things, and the characters of the Bible would have been like, oh, okay, the Lord is speaking to me from this bush. No, that's as crazy as you think it is. That's as crazy as you go out in your yard and the shrub starts talking to you. This is not normal. This is not normal. You shouldn't normalize it. It's not and, and Moses was taken back by it. And the Lord says to him, this is holy ground. And, and Moses recognizes what's going on, right? And, and he, he, he has this great conversation with the Lord that ends with what? Him yielding himself up to God and doing what God had told him to do. Unlike others who, who built cities and towers for themselves, here, what is Abraham doing? He's building altars. He's not building something so that he's remembered. He's building altars so that the people would remember God and to worship God. Well, Abraham continued to go through the land and look at verse 8. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. 
Now that word Negev means south or south country. So what what we're getting is that Abraham enters from the north and he's traveling through the country. And so this section, verses eight and nine, Abraham continues to move through the country. And as he had set an altar already in Shechem, now we see him move further. And what does he do again? He builds another altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Martin Luther says this word called could be the word preached. He's proclaiming something. He's proclaiming the name of the Lord. He is publicly declaring his faith in the Lord. He's establishing worship in this land. Boyce calls this claiming the land for God. This is going to be a place of worship. Abraham worshiped God. He publicly declared his his faith in God. God. He believed God's promise to give his family this land. He was committed to honoring the Lord. That's what these altars are representing, his worship of God. He demonstrated his faith by obedience and worship. Now, Abram was not only the father of Israel. We also learned that he was the father of faith, or as the text says, the man of faith. And though flawed, as we will see in just next week, actually we'll see the the failure of Abraham. He is an example of faith. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, faith takes God at his word and obeys. That's exactly what Abraham did. He took God at his word and he obeyed. God said, go, get out of your country and go to the land I'll show you. And what did Abraham do? He got out of his country and he went to the land that God would show him. He did exactly what he was told. Faith takes God at his word and obeys. You might remember as a child playing follow the leader, right? Now imagine if we were to play follow the leader today. And let's imagine that I'm the leader and I would say, let's all line up. And you all agreed to line up. And you're all agreeing to play, play my game. And I were to walk, and I start walking out to the parking lot. And I look back, and no one is following me. Now, you might say, That's, that has some questions about your leadership. Now, that, might be, that might be true, too. But it also would say something about you. You're not following. You're not actually doing it. The, the leader has said, this is where we're going, and you're not doing it. The evidence of faith, the evidence that the the leader is actually the leader that that you are believing in is that you follow him, that you accept his word and you obey. It's not actual rocket science here. This isn't actually that difficult to comprehend that when God speaks, we then obey. For many of us, we are overeducated for our obedience. The level of our obedience is far below our our level of knowledge. This is not a knowledge problem for most of us. Now, there are those who are ignorant of what God has said. And there is grace for that. And thus the need for discipleship and to hear Jesus' command to teach them all the things that I've commanded. But for many of us, we already know what many of the things that, that God has said. And we're willfully or intentionally refusing to follow. And yet we want to run around and call ourselves a Christian. And what is a Christian but a Christ follower? 
And how could you be a Christ follower if you're not following Christ? So I ask, are you walking by faith? Are you actually following God's word? Are you taking God at his word and obeying? God still speaks today. And there are some who, who want to suggest that God speaks outside of the Bible. We would dramatically and convictionally disagree with that. God speaks through the Bible. As one preacher says, if you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. Right? That's how God speaks. You want to hear from God, read the Bible. And so we ask, in what areas of your life are you hearing God's word and refusing to obey? Where has God called you? And even as you sit here this morning, you know you're refusing to obey. For some of us, it's going to come to you just like that. Now, some of us may have pushed it away long enough where God's going to need to reveal it to us through his spirit. But what are the areas in your life that you are resisting? What are the areas, what are the words of God that you are refusing to do, to follow? God in his word calls us, and here's just a short sampling. He calls us to repent and believe. He calls us to surrender to him, to die to ourselves and to follow him. He calls us to sacrifice ourselves as a living sacrifice. He calls us to serve. He's given us gifts and we are to use them. He calls us to worship him, to ascribe worth to him. He calls us to love, to love him and to love our neighbor. He calls us to forgive. He calls us to bear with one another. He calls us to make disciples. He calls us to help other people Know and follow him. We make more of, of making disciples than we probably need to. Meaning this, we make it more complicated. What is making a disciple? It's helping someone know and follow Jesus. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Know and follow Jesus. So that's evangelism and it's growth. It's spiritual care. That's what we mean when we say making disciples. Well, Kent Hughes sums up true faith this way. True faith believes the bare word of God. True faith steps out on God's word. True faith follows where God's word directs. True faith builds altars and worships where it goes. True faith proclaims the name of the Lord. Abraham is an example to us of true faith. He's an example, but he's not the author of our faith. He's not the originator of our faith. He's, he's not the, the initiator of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The late Timothy Keller once said this, Jesus is the true and better Abraham 
who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. As Abraham went, in a greater, more significant way, Jesus went, leaving heaven to come to us that we might be brought into the family of God. As Jesus left heaven to come to us, we are called to leave our life to come to Christ. But not only that, we are called to leave our sin and trust him alone. And not only that, but we're then called to go, to go and to tell this blessed good news of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. And so will you hear God's call today? Will you hear the call to come and follow him? I don't know where you're at spiritually this morning. You might be someone who, who, who's never heard the gospel before, never even heard that Jesus loves you and died for you. Then the message you hear today, the message that you must respond to today, is God's word to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus came because God so loved the world that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins and that whosoever would repent and believe might be saved from their sins, saved from God's wrath and punishments in order to have a relationship with God as Father, to have their sins forgiven, to have eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. If you've never come to Christ, that's the call of God today for you. If you've come to Christ and you, you are a Christian, then what's the call of God on your life today? Well, what, what are you ignoring today that God is calling to you? What way is God calling from his word to you that you have resisted? Today's the day. As we surrender our hearts to him and walk in obedience. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would convict us. God, where we have gone our own way, where we have rejected your word, God, bring us to repentance and then help us to obey. Help us to walk in faith. Faith that is demonstrated in obedience and worship. We pray for your spirit to speak to each heart in ways that only you can do. We yield ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh God.